So for many of you, that's the fifth time you've seen that video. And just admit it, it's really growing on you every time. You're like, oh, I love this video. I want to watch it all the time. Don't worry. You'll get to watch it one more time next week. We, we're receiving your feedback and trying to feed you, baby birds. Um, just joking. I know, I know it's getting old, but I love the video, and we're going to keep showing it because I love the video because I so identify with the flannel pajamas. I got those pajamas and so love New Year's and New Year's resolutions and new decades, and there is one reason I love them every single time, and this is the reason. Because, 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 because they are filled with possibility right? Every year, a new year, a new start, and there's all sorts of fun. And for example, this year, I've been working on all sorts of different New Year's resolutions. And one of them is, I believe it's possible that I could devote an hour every week in this service to one chapter of the Bible, right? One hour per week, per chapter. And here's the really good news. You ready for this? Today, we're covering Judges chapter 14, 15, and 16. And Romans chapters 6, 5, 6, and 7. Six chapters of the Bible. And I believe it's possible that all of us could spend six hours in here together. <laughs> oh, doesn't that sound good? No, no, no. Our children's workers have told me, you know what? That's not possible. <laughs> so it's not possible, right? And that's what we know about New Year's resolutions and new decade resolutions. Is they're all sorts of fun as long as you think it's possible. But now we're going on the third, fourth week of this. And no longer do you think it's possible that you could eat that protein bar for four of your five meals in each day that tastes just like cardboard. Right? It's just not possible. Some of you are like, there's no way. It's just not possible. I cannot sustain this good attitude. There's no complaining. I am ready to complain out loud. I'm ready to say those things out loud. Some of you are going, there's no way. It's just not possible that I can read the whole Bible in the year. Right? Because you've missed four, five, six, seven, eight, nine days, and you're like, I'd, I'd have to spend like half a day reading the Bible to get caught up. That's just not possible. There's just no way I can get up every single morning and get on that treadmill, right? You have this goal every day you're going to work out. It's just not possible. There's no way you're going to get to 10,000 steps every single day of the year. It's just not possible. And this is what we know about New Year's resolutions is that the minute you no longer think it's possible, you are corrupt, right? And but hear me, hear me. So we've been talking about how do you have New Year's resolutions, but this isn't a TED Talk on motivation and how to live your best life and all that kind of stuff. Because the reality is um, we're not near as strong as we like to think we are. Our intentions usually are good, but our actions don't always follow in suit, right? And so the reality is for all of us in this room, which is nice, at least we have some people we can understand and can be around is that... Um, it's very hard for us to do the very things that we say we're going to do. Much less what other people think we should do. And so instead of talking about what's possible and thinking about your New Year's resolution and what you think is possible, the question we've been asking, this is week number four. Instead of asking what do you think is possible, the question we've been asking is what do you think God thinks is possible for you this year? And that's really important because it's not about what you think is possible. It's not about how you underwrite it or sustain it. It's about the God of the universe underwriting it and sustaining it. So it's a different question. What do you think God thinks is possible? Now, all of us in this room have some opinions about that. Right? Some of us are really excited about that and going, yay, God. Others of us are wondering if God can actually come through. And so if you've been in the series with us, this is my year. This is going to be it, right? This is my decade. You probably started pretty hopeful. I know you're getting a little bit of su suspicion about that hopefulness. Not that you don't think God's real. and you don't think he's good. But there's somehow about your behavior and what you're doing seems to not line up with what God's doing. And you're all confused if God's going to fix your marriage, get you that job, bring your kids back. And so you are slightly, if not um, very heavily, suspicious that God thinks anything's possible for you this year. You know, others of you, you don't think God thinks anything's possible for you this year because you don't think he's real. Right? Either not real as you actually don't believe there's a God. That's fine. No judgment there. Or if there is a God, he is so far away in the distance. He kind of set the clock, ran it, and he's just so absent. Right? That you couldn't imagine that God would want to intervene in your life. Now, I'm not telling you that you should believe that wholeheartedly. I'm just saying, could, today, today, could you at least, least think it's possible? Right? Here's, here's, here's how, maybe this will help. Right now, you are, you're breathing. It's all of us in the room. So crazy. All of us are breathing. And we're all breathing the same thing. Oxygen. 
Our bodies need oxygen. Do you know why? I mean, there's some scientific reason, but why in the world do we need oxygen? Couldn't we create something else to need instead? But no, we all need oxygen. You, you, all of us. We're breathing all that in. And here's what's happening. That is filling our lungs and somehow helping our heart and mind work, our bloodstream move. And that oxygen is necessary for you to live. We all believe that. And here's what's crazy. You're breathing that in. Your body in this moment is converting that to all sorts of uh, fuel for us. And then it's um, having this residual waste, right, that we call carbon dioxide. And then your body is creating that waste out of that oxygen and you're breathing it back out. Since I've said this, you've done that probably at least 30 times. And then that carbon dioxide is going out into this world. And then plants, 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 they need that to survive. So they, they suck it in. And then they produce oxygen out of that, right? All around the world right now that is happening everywhere. And why in the world is that the case? Have you ever thought about that? What if it's possible that God designed it that way? This interdependency. And by the way, that's... The most plausible explanation that there is some intelligent designer greater than all of us who creates that thing. And I just say this. If that God can create and orchestrate photosynthesis, right? Then what if it's possible that same God is actually just as interested in, just like you receive that oxygen, just as interested in him being received by you and entering your life, purging you from all the mess, right? And allowing that mess to leave you. What if that's possible? And I just say, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to wholeheartedly believe it, but could you just think that maybe it's possible? And if you think that, then you have just joined hundreds of people in this room. Because the reality, here's what I'll tell you about us. We don't always believe it. We think it's possible, but we don't always believe it. In fact, we wrestle with this. Some, there are times for us, for us who really believe in Jesus, really believe he's God's son, really believe that he comes, gives us his spirit, and empowers us to go do good work in this world and bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. We believe that. And we are, a lot of times, filled with hope that that's the case, right? But boy, do every single one of us who believe that wrestle with our own identity, our own control. And many of us are very suspicious that God still cares about us. And we've come up with some reasons. We have some uh, anecdotal reasons that our life hasn't um, shown the productivity that we thought God would do. And, and others, we just know ourselves. We know our own damage. We know how often we just say to God, we're just not that interested in you. Right? Every person in this room, in some way or another... This week has said, God, we like our plan better than yours. It's part of it. In fact, that what happens for the greatest of Christians. You read about them throughout history. You read about St. Augustine, you know, almost 2,000 years ago in his writings, 1,800, 1,700 years ago, who writes about that very wrestling. You can read about this great Jewish king, David, and you can read through the book of Psalms, and you can see the struggle with the wrestling. And the greatest of Christians, the very greatest, you see about people who started scientific uh, revolutions like Isaac Newton and Galileo who loved Jesus and wrestled with this, right? You see it throughout human history that the greatest Christians, uh, they believed in the possibility and yet, yet they wrestled with it deeply. Which is why for the last several weeks we've been looking at a nation whose name literally means wrestle with God, right? The Israelites. And the thing we like about the Israelites, just to tell you, is um, while they wrestled and boy did they mess it up, they at least wrestled. And in that day and age, and still today throughout our world, that day and age, while this nation was wrestling with whether or not God was good and loving and filled with hope and possibility, all the nations around had already kind of made a judgment that that God either is not good or he's not real, and that they should just take the matters in their own hands. And so this nation, the Israelites, they literally played hokey-pokey with God. They'd put their heart in, they'd take their heart out. They put the heart in, they take the heart out. So we've just tried to figure out, okay, if they are like us, is there some things we can learn from them, perhaps, to figure out a better life? And what we've been kind of talking about is this cycle that the Israelites lived in. And now we're going to focus mostly is after these Israelites get their own land. So for a long time, they were captives to the Egyptians. Then they lived kind of as homeless folks, wandering in the wilderness. This is when Moses was their leader. And then they get this leader named Joshua. And Joshua leads them into the promised land, this land that we've referred to over and over again as the land of possibility, right? They moved in and God's like, look, 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 this is your territory. Take it all. And he divided this, this nation. Israel was the name, the original name was Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, who God made all these promises to. And Jacob's name literally gets changed to Israel because he, like us, wrestles with God and he has these 12 sons and they create these 12 tribes and these 12 sons represent kind of their, their own nation state within the nation and these, these tribes as they continue to develop were given their own territory in this land. And they were sent to enjoy it. And they were so excited about the possibility. And then, and then, 
as days, weeks, months, years, decades go by, they begin to get more and more suspicious about God's goodness and the possibility of what he could do like us, right? Wrestle with them. And so what they decided to do over and over again, they pulled their heart back away from God. And they go, God, we don't think we can trust you with our heart. We definitely don't think we can trust you with our future. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to be responsible for our own heart. We're going to be responsible for our own future. And what we see happen over and over again in this book of Judges after Joshua's death is these folks turn their back on God. And the word that we've used here is rebel. That just means they like their plan better than God's, which is what we do. Some of us do it... Uh, Overtly, We literally say, I know what you want for us, God, but that doesn't sound like fun, right? That's what the Israelites said. Okay, yeah, you want us to clean up our territories. You don't want us to compromise. You don't want us to fill our hearts and our souls and our kids with just vile, right? Some of us do it overtly. A lot of us do it covertly, right? Either just because we have this natural response to life and these appetites that we have, and others of us do it because we just don't believe there's a God. There are many of those in this nation. We go, I really don't think God's real. So what happened is they would rebel. That just means they chose their own plan. They stopped being interested in the Torah or God's Word or God's Scriptures or God's Law. And they just lived their own life, created their own way, which is what most of us do. And in that rebellion, literally God goes, Oh, you don't want to follow me? Oh, you don't really need my help? You don't want my provision? You don't want my protection? You don't want my security? He would get angry, right? The same way you get angry when your kids put something in their body they shouldn't, see something they shouldn't, date someone they shouldn't, right? Not because you don't love your kid. Because you know there's so much better for them and that. And God in his righteous anger goes, okay, okay. You don't want my help. That's fine. And he pulls back. What the scripture tells in Judges, and you see it again in Romans chapter 1, is basically they get turned over to their own desires. Meaning they just, they live the life they want. And the very things they thought was going to make them feel more worth, you know, this you dated someone in high school. You thought that was the case. The very thing that they gave their lives to, their bodies to, their intimacies to, their hearts to, the very things they thought was going to give them so much worth actually made them feel worth less. And so we see over and over again, God goes, okay, you can have that. And what happens for the nation of Israel, what happens for us, is there's just this deep pain. Now, we don't like pain. We've been talking about it for this fourth week now. But we've got to learn to like pain. Not that we enjoy living in pain, but we've got to learn to value pain for what it is. And pain is a great clarifier that reveals to us that something is wrong. Something's wrong in your relationship. Something's wrong with your body. Something's wrong with your mind. Something's wrong in your workplace, right? Pain's goal was to help you understand that something's wrong. In the nation of Israel, they'd get it. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And what they do every single time, they would cry out in great distress. Okay, God, we messed it up. If you're real, if it's possible, would you please, 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 please save us? So they would go, God, we're not right. We, we were wrong. We were wrong. We did it wrong. Like We've all done this. God, if you would, then I would. God, if you'd get me out of this jail. God, if you would bring back my spouse. If you'd bring my kid. God, if you would. Sorry, we did it wrong, but would you? And here, I want you to hear this. Every single time in the scriptures in the book of Judges, every single time, the nation cried out, hear me, hear me. The God of the universe sent his salvation. Now, this wasn't a permanent salvation. This was a temporary band-aid to a deep pain. So these people were hemorrhaging. And God would send his triage into them. And the way that he'd do it throughout the book of Judges is by a judge. And this isn't a judge like you think of a judge. This isn't a judicial force. This is a rescuer. This is someone that looked a lot like Joshua. One who was a warrior king. And to remind them that God is good and loving. And jo this judge, every single time, would go to the source and destroy the oppression and the captivity. So this was going to the king or going to the commander. They would go and they'd destroy that which was oppressing God's people. And they'd say, hey, hey. They, she would say, hey, hey, follow me. And they'd follow this Israeli, uh, this Israeli judge, this commander, this warrior king. And as long as that judge still lived, called them back. Hey, hey, remember God's faithful. God is good. They'd live a good life. So they didn't give their hearts back to God. They just pragmatically understood that this was a better way to live. Right? And so they would, they just follow the judge. And sometimes this judge would show up and save them for 20 years, 40 years, 80 years, and inevitably, because we know what happens to people, people die. And when that judge died, these people who lived again in this land of possibility would go, okay, we're not sure God's good anymore. We're not sure God's loving. And they would just jump right back into the pattern. And over and over and over again, there is just this cycle that they lived in. And it's very similar to those of us who wrestle with God in the cycle that we live in. And many of us, because you don't wrestle with God, not, not, not judgment here. But you've spent a lot of your time, in fact, maybe the reason you're here is just because of this word. You're going, I don't really see hope. I feel lots of pain. It doesn't really seem that there's any option for me to live and enjoy life. And you're going, maybe, 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 maybe it's possible. 
that God could do something. And so for the last few weeks, we've been kind of sorting through this. And I don't get a lot of time to cover the last couple of weeks of material. Say if uh, you want to do that, you can go online. But we kind of set up the series. I kind of showed you the cycle over and over again in Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then what we see is God starts sending these judges. But the problem with all these judges, as I just told you, is they would die. And then they just go right back to the pattern because this was triage. This was a band-aid. This was not a permanent solution. But the good news is each one of those judges would point to a greater judge. What I told you is um, when the New Testament starts, the way it starts is that God actually sends another judge. right? Because the, the, the people were in oppression to the Roman government. And they're crying out, God, would you save us? And this time God's not going to do triage. He's going to save them from all their pain and all their oppression. And so he shows up and he tells Joseph, Jesus, his earthly father, hey, you, your wife's going to have a kid. But he's going to be God, and he's going to be the perfect judge. And the reason we know that is he says, you're going to name him Joshua. You know, no, his name is Jesus. Yeah. Joshua is the Hebrew word for Jesus. And the reason being is he's going to be the warrior king who's finally going to fix this cycle. And then he says something so profound. He says, and he's going to save the people, you, me. He's going to save us. But then he says something so messed up. He says, and the way that he's going to save them is from their sin. Not the enemy, not the Philistines, not the Midianites, not the oppressor. And for us, it's not your ex, it's not your spouse, it's not your boss, it's not some country in the Middle East, right? It's not your economy, it's not those who lean left or lean right politically. That is not what's oppressing us. We think it is. He's going, no, 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 what's really oppressing you? What really is your problem? Your greatest problem is your sin. In other words, your greatest enemy, and you know this cognitively if you spend enough time doing it. The person who does the most damage to you. The person who trashes you the most, the person who talks the worst about you, the person who fills you with despair and depression, is not some external voice. Oh, it's you, right? And so what we see here is God continues to send a judge, but he said, well, one day it'll get fixed. And what I promise you is one day Jesus said he would come and save us from our sin. And that just seems really ethereal. What does that mean? How do we fix it? And we talked about how to identify sin, kill the spider of the sin, second and third week of this sermon. Don't have time to cover it. But what we're going to see today is another judge. And the reality is he is just as broken as we are. And he has a very big problem. And this problem is this problem. And perhaps if we can learn something from his life, we can deal with the same problem he has and see some hope in it. And so we're going to figure out what is sin, where does it come from, and how do we get saved from it today. And the way by which we're going to do that is look at a judge named Samson. And Samson is a broken, broken dude. He was... He has all sorts of stuff happened to him. He was his worst enemy. He couldn't control his appetites. He couldn't control his anger. And it destroyed him. And usually when people talk to you about Samson, they say, see, if you just clean up your act, if you fix yourself. And that is the wrong way to talk about Samson. But before we talk about Samson, I just want you to get kind of an overview of his life. So here's a quick video, six minutes, so get comfortable. You can take your shoes off of Samson's life. This is basically Judges chapter 14 and 15. So here goes. Six minutes, two chapters. It's You're time welcome. for a Bible story. Long ago in the land of Israel, a little baby boy was born. Aw, look at that cute little guy. But this was a very special baby. God had big plans for him. His name was... Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. Let me guess. Okay. It starts with an S. Uh, swimmy, slippy, slappy, Samsonite, uh, Swanson. That's it. Okay, let me just tell you. The baby's name was Samson. Ha! That was way off. After Samson was born, an angel appeared to his mother and gave her a very important message. God was going to use Samson to do some amazing things, but there were a few rules that he would have to follow. Oh, I got these covered. Here we go. Rule number one, don't walk on the grass. No. Rule number two, don't wear black without the blue. No. Rule number three, don't drink orange juice right after you brush your teeth. No. Okay, actually, that last one is pretty good advice. But no, those were not the rules that Samson would have to follow. First of all, he wasn't able to eat any unclean food. Wait, what do you mean unclean food? Like he had to wash all of his food in the sink? Gross. Get ready for some soggy sandwiches, buddy. No, unclean food back then meant things like pork. Whoa, wait a minute. Pork? Isn't that where bacon comes from? Uh, yeah. He couldn't eat bacon? What did he eat for breakfast or, or lunch or dinner? If I couldn't eat bacon, I would starve. Wait, why do you eat bacon for every meal? Uh, because America. Okay, well, it really wasn't that big of a deal. He just had to keep a certain diet. More like diet, as in he died from being hungry and sad. Okay, cut it out. That wasn't the only rule, and the next one's even more interesting. 
interesting. Samson was never allowed to cut his hair. As Samson grew up, his hair grew longer and longer and longer. But he obeyed the rule and never, ever cut it. Really? Not even a trim? Like, just the loose ends? Nope. Well, at least he could, like, style it however he wanted, right? Uh, I guess so. Oh, man, I bet his hairdresser had some fun with that. You could give him one of these. Um... Or the ultimate mohawk. Well... The hammerhead. The name tag. The Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm sure he just kept it straight and let it grow out like a normal person. Yeah, that's a good look. Nice do, Fabio. So, hold on a second. Why exactly does he have to follow these rules? Right. God gave Samson a very special gift. Super strength. Nice. At that time, the people of Israel were being ruled by some really wicked dudes called the Philistines. God wanted to use Samson as a mighty warrior that would lead his people. So, God gave him incredible superhuman strength. Like, how strong are we talking? As strong as me? Uh way stronger. I don't know. I can pick up a whole gallon of milk over my head. Alright, get this. One time Samson was walking along in the desert and out of nowhere a giant ferocious lion attacked him. Yikes. That's probably the end of the story, huh? Bye-bye, Samson. Nope. Samson grabbed a hold of the lion and tore it to pieces. Whoa, that's crazy. Give me another one. All right. Samson was trapped in a city by some Philistine soldiers. They locked the huge metal gate and were going to ambush him. But that was no problem for Samson. He just ripped the gates off the city walls and carried them away. Dude, now that's an exit. Bye, Felicia. Hit me again. Okay, one more. Another time, Samson was surrounded by a thousand Philistine soldiers. They all had swords and shields and spears, and all he had was a jawbone from a donkey he found on the ground. Yowza. Looks like that's all she wrote. We'll miss you, big guy. Not so fast. The Philistines charged, but Samson fought back and totally wiped them out. What? He killed a thousand soldiers with a donkey's jawbone? Yep. Man, he really does have some crazy, mega, awesome, super strength. He could probably do whatever he wanted. Throw a baseball around the earth, arm wrestle a bunch of bears, bench press the pyramids. But remember, he would only have that power if he followed those rules. Ah, that's right. No snippy, no piggy. So what happens next? Does he, like, save the day and rescue the people of Israel? Not exactly. For years, Samson followed the instructions that God gave him and was a great, strong leader. But after a while, he got a little careless with who he was spending his time with. He met a woman named Delilah, but he shouldn't have been hanging out with her. Why not? Was she smelly? Close talker? No, Delilah was actually a Philistine. Eesh, aren't they like the enemy of the people of Israel? What gives, Sammy? Samson spent a lot of time with Delilah and eventually fell in love with her. Ah, what are you doing, Samson? Come on, man. Samson was getting closer to Delilah and turning further away from God. He even started breaking some of the rules God had given him. But the last one he still kept was his hair. Okay, good. Still have the super strength. Yeah, for now. The Philistines came up with the plan to capture Samson, but first they'd have to find out his secret. They made a deal with Delilah to find out what made Samson so strong, and she agreed to help them. What? I knew she was no good. That girl is poison. No kidding. Night after night, Delilah begged Samson to tell her the secret to his super strength, and he held out for a while, but eventually she wore him down and he told her his secret, that if his hair was cut, his strength would disappear. No, Samson, how could you? Late that night when he was sleeping, Delilah quietly cut off all Samson's hair. Philistine soldiers rushed in the room and Samson sprang to his feet, expecting to fight them off like he had many times before. But this time was different. Oh, something's different, all right. Run for it, Goldberg! He tried to run and fight, but his strength was gone. The Philistine soldiers laughed as they tied him up, carried him away, and kept him as a prisoner for the rest of his life. Man, that totally stinks. He had, like, so much going for him. What happened? Ah, so what happens to Samson? Let's read Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse... 21, we find Samson in captivity, and here's what it says. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in prison. It's great, powerful judge. Now has not led his people out of captivity. Instead, he's led himself to captivity. Verse 22. But the hair on his head began 
to grow again after it's shaved. And typically when people teach about this, this is the verse they want to highlight. And I'll highlight all they highlight and tell you why there's more to talk about. That's, see, even in all this, even in all this, even though he disobeyed God and everything, disobeyed God and absolutely everything, led himself to this deep pain. God is going to extend grace. You see his hair starting to grow back, meaning his strength is coming back. So let's pay attention to what's going to happen with this strength. So God is still gracious. God is still good. God still keeps his promises, right? Right. There's a, a side note, not the point, but a point. Here's what it says next. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Nope. That God's not real. So that God didn't do it. You know what did it? Sin. Samson did it. This disease, this brokenness inside him is what causes this. Let's see what happens next. When the people saw him, they praised their God. They gave credit to a false God saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands. Nope, sin did. The one who laid waste of our land and multiplied our slain. So this is a guy who's murdered a bunch of people, done all sorts of bad stuff, and they believe this false God has provided. No, no. Sin did. So let's continue. While they were in high spirits, I think that's actually meaning they were excited. I don't know if that means they liked their spirits. They shouted, bring out Samson to see this, entertain us. You see this? You've got to see this. This is what sin does. That's what brokenness does. The first thing it does is it turns our back on God. The second thing that sin, the byproduct of sin is always that we start seeing people as a means to our own end. And most of the times our own end is our own comfort and pleasure. Right? This is where all injustices start in trafficking and slavery. Where we see sin. And when we allow it in our life, we no, no longer see people as humans. We see them as means. So you see this in Samson's life. Great, strong guy. Let's bring him out to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison. And he performed for them. You see the great pain and struggle of our world. People want people to perform for them. So Samson, walking away from God, choosing his own path, has led himself to this captive lifestyle. When they stood him among the pillars, right? So here he is. He's doing that. Verse 26. Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. So this is all the great leaders, all the wealthy, influential people in the Philistine nation. They are all there. If you've ever seen Designated Survivor, you know, that the show where kind of the premise is the first episode is the guy who's not important, whatever his role is within the federal government. He's put in some safe room and then everybody else kind of comes to the, you know, the State of the Union address. Thousands of people, all that influence, all the leadership for the nation. And in that moment, you know, the, the bombing happens. And basically the, the, the idea would be that they would take out all those people who led a nation, all the ones who are in charge. What you see is this is what's going to happen. All these people are gathered in this place. Samson is there. And watch this. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. This is interesting because... This is repentance. Now, he's still got some broken motives, but this is repentance. This is him actually asking God to do something. For the longest time, his whole adult life, he actually thought it was his power. That's why we think he told Delilah about the haircut thing and then immediately lays on her lap and goes to sleep. He's not worried, right? Because he's believed his own press. We saw that last week with Gideon. At the end of his life, he gets to the point that it's no longer dependent on God. He goes, I can do this. We see it becomes a snare in his life. And so this, this belief, all of a sudden, Samson goes, No, I know, I know, I know. Strength doesn't come from me. It comes from the Lord. So he asks the Lord. But it says this. Sovereign Lord. It actually, it's just the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. But we pull it out here in the NIV to say sovereign Lord. In some way, like, just saying Lord's not enough. Because that word Yahweh means the self-sustaining and righteous one. The one who doesn't need anything else. The one who is all-powerful and great. In this moment, he's going, God, you're actually the one in control. God, you're where strength comes from. You are where sustenance comes from. So sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. Just once more. And let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. So, God, would you, would you give me just enough strength to just wipe out this nation, which is going to lead my people from not being oppressed to be freed from the captivity of the Philistines? Verse 29, Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. So he reaches to them, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said... 
let me die with the Philistines. This is the great sacrifice of the judge. No, no, no. I'll die with them for their freedom. I'll die with them for their release from captivity. I'll die with them to remove and release them from their oppression. And this is where we see a picture of God. Jesus, this is a foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do. No, no, no. I'll die so they don't have to. I'll die because there is an enemy. There is someone who is an adversary to the people. There is someone, and it actually says, the Bible says, the wages of our sin is death, meaning someone is going to cause a great tragedy and casualty and fatality for those people who have turned their backs on God. Right? And Jesus goes, no, no, God, God, I don't want that punishment to happen for them. I'll do it on your behalf. And so most people would go, this is Jesus giving us a picture. Or this is uh, the Bible giving us a picture of a better judge who's going to come. Not like Samson, perfect in every way. He's going to do this. But in this moment, he says, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all of his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more people when he died than when he lived. So you see in this moment, there is some relief for the Israelites. No, it's going to be short-lived. But for just a moment, they're released from their captivity. The Philistines are no longer the enemy. A new enemy is going to come up. But they're no longer the enemy. In this moment, we see is that this is, this is a solution to the Israeli problem in that moment. No, it's a temporary one. It's a triage moment. It's a band-aid. It's not the real solution. So usually what happens is people preach this. They'll go, the believes you should know. One, see God being gracious. He lets his hair grow back. He doesn't have to do that. That's really nice of you, God. Thanks. Second one is um, all the problems in our world get solved with death. Really kind of a morbid way to explain it, but hey, one day, this is what you'll hear. Here's the, you know, the carrot stick. One day, there'll be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. I'll tell you about that. Hey, one day, but that's not today. But one day when you die, because God is so gracious, he'll free you from all that. Look, Samson does it. He dies, and then all of a sudden, it frees these people. But this is a temporary moment. But when you die, you'll enter into glory. This is what we tell you. When people die, they're in a better place. I mean that. Believe that. They wouldn't even come back to this broken world. And so so many people kind of hinge this story on death, which isn't a lot of fun. You know why? Because none of you are dead. So we're going to have this whole time and energy spent here just to say, hey, hey, it's bad, it's bad. I know I get it, I get it, it's bad, but one day it'll be better, so just suck it up. Right? But this is not at all what we see here. No, they get some freedom, but this is not what the message is about. This isn't a story of one day in death all things will be made right. Okay? Well, this is part of what you see here, but this is not the story. And please hang in with me so that you see this. This is not about one day when you die, you won't deal with sin anymore. That is true. But this isn't a story for your eternity future, okay? So you see that. And the, the third way that usually people handle this, they offer you the grace, yeah, 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 and they offer you death, Jesus dies for you. But then they go, here's some nuggets that you should know. Don't be like Samson. We agree, right? Don't be like Samson. Control your appetite. Control your lust. Don't be angry. Control your anger. And then we'll say... Yeah, do all those things. And don't compromise. Don't allow all that brokenness in our culture to come into your life and dilute it. Don't be like Samson, because if you're like Samson, you'll get the disease. You know, don't have sex before marriage, because then you'll get the clap. You know, like, that's how we talk about it in the church. Like, don't do this, because then there's some bad things. Don't do this, because Samson will end up in captivity. Don't do this. And it just seems like this morality religion, where I'm telling you just to behave and perform, and then somehow God's happy with you. But here's what I'll tell you, that, that is such a lie from how God works. This is not about your behavior, right? Because when you're doing this, here's what we're saying, here's what we're saying. Samson had a problem, don't have Samson's problem. And here's Samson's problem. He was really good at sinning. Got it? Sinning. Samson was a great sinning person. He was really good at sinning. Don't be like Samson or you'll get your diseases. Don't be like Samson or you'll go bankrupt. Don't be like Samson or you'll be homeless. Here's this great thing. Don't be like Samson or you'll have a bad marriage. Right? All these kind of things. It's all about the sinning. Right? So we spend all this time and energy trying to tell you not to sin. The verb. Right? And you're going, hey, hey, Josh, can you preach a sermon on, you know, whatever it is. Don't do drugs so my kids will stop. Sinning, right? So we have this conversation. Don't be like Samson because Samson was the great at sinning, right? The verb. But hear me. The sinning wasn't Samson's problem. These were all just symptoms of a much greater problem. So it seems weird that we had highlight the cleaning up of the sin, the sinning, right? This is like if your house has a massive leak in the roof, the solution isn't just put towels down. Right? And so we go, hey, stop sinning, because Samson should have stopped sinning, and everybody would get better if we just would stop sinning. But you see, this isn't the problem. When Jesus came to say that he saves us from our sins, he's not talking about the verb. He's not talking about the things you looked at, or the things you smoked, or the things you said, or the things you read, or the things you stole. 
You see, that problem with that message is it never really resolves anything because we are going to continue to keep sinning. And this is why we don't think God's a God as a possibility because you go, I'll never do that again. Y'all white knuckle I'll put up some new accountability. And for the Israelites, as long as they had their accountability software, as long as they had the leader who inspected every part of their life, as long as they had the person checking their taxes to make sure they weren't cheating, as long as they had all these different things, they were in line. But the minute Samson, the minute the judge died, it goes back to the same messy cycle because they kept sinning. And you know, I know, this is a real hard problem that we're never going to solve. And there's a reason for that. The problem isn't sinning. The problem wasn't that Samson was really good at sinning. The problem was that Samson was a sinner. See this? It's not sinning that's the problem. It's sinner. And so when we think about sin, what we usually talk about is the behavior, the verb. But deep down for Samson, what his problem was is that he was a sinner. This is what he needs salvation from. Not whatever his modality of sin was. He was a sinner. In other words, deep down there was this thing in him. There was this broken code that kept leading him to this broken place. So when Jesus says he came to save the people from their sins, he's talking about the fact that we are sinners. That we are ungodly. That there is a problem with us. And it would make sense that we'd figure out that problem and go straight to the source. It makes sense we wouldn't throw towels down for the water. We'd go fix the roof. Right? Let me just tell you what Samson would have communicated to you. And this is what I would communicate to you as the chief sinner of this room. Right? That's what I am. That's what Paul would refer to him to as, as the chief sinner. And that's a lot of pressure. Hey, pastor, you better have your life together. I'm like, nope. Me too. Sinner. Right? And so let me just read this to you. And so Paul, this writer of the New Testament, understood this deeply. In fact, he calls himself a sinner. That was his problem. Chief of sinners. Not chief of sinning. Big difference. Right? The noun. The nature. And this is a guy who writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And he is keenly aware of his brokenness. And he's going to spend some time helping us understand how we resolve this problem. Chief of sinner, not chief of sinning. And this is what Paul writes. And I think you might identify with it. I know Samson did. This is Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Here's what he says. Oh, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So he's writing to this really wealthy community, trying to live like God, but filled in Rome with great governments, great plans, great things. He's going, even when I try to do the right things, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Every time I get up, I go, this year, I won't do that. I won't say that. I won't believe that. And then I keep doing it. Verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Okay, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that I need a judge. I agree that I need some guardrails. I agree that I need parameters. I agree that I need a speed limit. Right? Because I, if I'm in a car, I want to go as fast as I can to the destination. I just am. No matter what I do, either I got to get a governor on my car or I got to get police out there with radar, right? Because what I don't want to do, I will keep doing, right? Verse 17, as it is, that's what he says. And anyway, at first it seems like, ah, oh, he's passing the buck. As it is, it's no longer myself who, it's no longer I myself who do it, but a sin living in me. Right? So he's going, no, there's something in me. Right? And you ask your kid, why do you do that? And they go, oh, no. And you go, yes, you do. Figure it out. And you go, I don't know. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I lied. I don't know. Right? He's going, Paul, as a grown man, wise man, writes two-thirds of the New Testament, right? All the letters. He goes, I don't know what I do. I actually think there is a monster that lives in me. And you're going, this is crazy talk. He's going to continue. Watch this. And it, it's going to sound crazy. Watch what he says. For I know that good itself does not even dwell in me. I looked in there. There's nothing good. Like I keep looking in there and I can't find the good monster, right? There's just the bad guy in there. That is in my sinful nature. In other words, I am a sinner. For I have the desire to do what is good. I want to. I make the commitments. I make the promises. I make the resolutions. I have the desire to do what is good. But I cannot carry it out. Now watch this. You're probably starting to understand this and agree with it. But watch this. This is verse 19. I'm going to pay attention to the word do. That's the verb, right? He's saying there's something about the noun that's more complicated. But watch this verb, do. For I do not do the good I want to do. What? I don't. But... I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. So he's going, the good I want to do, like that behavior, 
I don't do. But the things I don't want to do, the evil, I keep doing. There is something wrong, and I cannot fix my sinning, right? Now, if I do what I don't want to do, do not want to do, it must be that it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that do as it, right? That does it. You see this. Here's the problem. There is this thing living inside Samson, and he cannot get it fixed. And so I just say, this would be the place that you can have some courage. I'll ask you to raise your hand. But can you just look at your life and go, oh man, that's my story. Ask my spouse. That's my story, right? You can survey your promises and go, what is wrong with me? Join the club here. Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners. And he says this, so I find this law at work. This means there's this thing going on in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I actually delight in God's law. Somewhere in me, I want to delight in God. I believe he's real and I want to please him. And I'm going, you know, I believe this is the God of the possibility. And then somehow you still get on the cycle, right? So what is it? But I see another law at work in me. You know, this law is waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. So again, there is something innate in me that's always been there that I have not been able to fix. And it goes back as far as I have memories. And he says this. What a wretched man I am. Right? So I love this because some point in your life, we don't like to admit it, don't want to admit it out loud, but when we pause and think about our greatest enemy and we come to this conclusion that it's ourself, we look at ourselves and go, how in the world can we keep saying that to ourselves? Why in the world do I keep telling me that if I'm skinnier, people will like me? Right? Why in the world do I keep telling myself that if I work harder, then finally I'll be accepted? What in the world is wrong with me? Why am I the greatest monster man? What a wretched man I am. And then what he says, you see this? He says, pay attention. Who will rescue me? This is really important. Because you're not going to find this in a Barnes and Noble self-help book. This isn't what can rescue me. What great insight. What great proverb. What great formula. He actually says, who will rescue me? from this body that is subject to death. So we see that Paul explains the problem. He's a sinner. And now he starts going, what's the solution to that problem? And he is, like in Judges, understands that it's not a what that will rescue him, but a who. He needs a perfect judge. He needs a perfect deliverer. And this is what he says. And this is what he discovered. Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me. Delivers me like a judge. Who delivers me. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, that's really nice. And there's this Jesus that delivers us. And you've heard to pray the prayer. Jesus delivers you. And you go, wait, I prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer. I've asked God to forgive me of my sins. And then I go the next day and I look at it again. I ask God to do it. And I put up some accountability. And then I do it again. Right? You're going, oh, that's great. Really appreciate it. Jesus saves us from our sins. We sing songs about that. But I still keep sinning. Right? And so Paul... This is really interesting. Is Paul's going to give us this kind of conclusion of what he's come to and give us a conclusion to who the, the Savior is. Romans chapter 7, he tells you what the conclusion is. So in, you know, in conclusion, I keep doing the things I don't want to do. I can't fix me. I'm a wretched man. Oh, but in conclusion, I've discovered that there is one who can save me, and his name is Jesus. Right? That's what Paul says. That's kind of the conclusion. What's nice is he, he gives us again the, the synopsis at the end. But if you go back to Romans chapter 5, he actually explains to you how this plays out. This is really important. So you go, Okay, God saves you from our sins. Jesus saves me from our sins. But how does he save us from our sins? Because the prayer is not working. Can we just admit it? The prayer didn't work. You prayed the prayer and you still do the things. So it can't be just, I think some things and all this fixed. There's got to be some way by which this actually happens. And Paul, the great practitioner, the one who took the church to Europe, right? That this guy, he actually tells you how. And so I'm going to read back, starting in Romans chapter 5, how. Now we're going to move through this fast. Then I'm going to give you a couple illustrations that are going to help you on the board. So just stay with me. You might need to go read this again. And then at the very end, I'm going to hopefully give you not a perfect analogy, not a perfect anecdote, but one that at least helps you see how you can get on the right trajectory. Okay? And we're going to do that in about 10 or 15 minutes. So here goes Romans chapter 5, verse um, 6. He says, you see, at just the right time, we were still powerless. Sinners. We prayed the prayers, couldn't fix the things. And Christ, Christ, he died for the ungodly. Now, just, this might be offensive, but he's talking about you. If he's not talking about you, he's definitely talking about the person sitting next to you. So look at them and tell them, you're ungodly, right? That's what he's saying here. Like, you are ungodly, right? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, right? Occasionally, I'll die for my kids. They're not righteous. I love them. I don't know that I'd die for all of you. Maybe some of you. 
Yeah, there's some I wouldn't. I think that's a joke. That's a joke. For a righteous person, though, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. So he's like, this is, this is a conundrum. Like, Christ, the God of the universe, he dies for us. But that's so weird because we don't die for people, right? But God demonstrates his own love for us. And that's he goes, God, hate me. I'm so bad. And he goes, no, 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 no. God loves you. And here's how he demonstrates it. While we were still sin. Nurse, while that was who you are, while that was your daddy, while this is your boss, while this is your nature, God, Christ, died for you. So there's something about death. We see it with Samson that frees it. So there's something that death does create a solution. So how in the world does Jesus' death do it? I understand how it pays the price for my sin, right? I understand that maybe if God goes, bad people deserve to pay a punishment and there is a penalty. The wages of sin is death. Okay, I get that. And Jesus dies for me, so I don't have to pay the penalty. But what is he talking about? Is that all he's talking about? Me getting to heaven? Is this how he punches my ticket? And Paul, hear me, hear me, hear me. It's not talking about getting you to heaven one day. This is not, no, this, this is, a, this is, Included. This is the bonus. Oh, and you get into heaven. What's behind door number one, right? You get a good life, and you get into heaven, right? It's that. But this is not his, his primary goal was not to convince you that one day you'll get into heaven and things will get fixed. He is noticing, I have discovered how to live in this life with joy and peace. And one thing we can say about Samson is he didn't have any of those things. He had a miserable existence, guys. And the sinner created the miserable existence for him. He had all this power in the world and he couldn't enjoy it. He had all of God's favor and spirit in the world, and he couldn't enjoy it because he was a sinner. So Paul's going, let me tell you how to deal with us being a sinner. Since, now here's the thing you've got to understand about Paul. As he's saying this, he's brilliant. And uh, he moves kind of fast. Probably writes really messy. You know, so you wouldn't want to read his whiteboard writing. And um, because he's always active, uh, see, you know, he would have printed it for us. No, he wouldn't have. He would have actually had an assistant transcribe most of his work. So as he's speaking it, some kind of assistant's writing it down, going to get his letter and send it off, right? So some of the things that happens is he thinks out loud and processes out loud, and he talks kind of in a stream of consciousness. So what you're going to see happen, he, he kind of sets this up. And then he's going to go in uh, uh, Romans chapter... Uh, 5 verse 9 and it's going to get a little confusing because he's just going to share some of his thoughts so they're going to make a lot of sense and he's going to kind of narrow them down but you've got to stay with them for a second okay kind of like here right we're going to say a lot of stuff but just stay with me eventually we'll get back to the point hopefully if not you should find a better church I'm so sorry right so here goes verse 9 since we have now been justified by his blood there's something about the death something about the blood how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him so there's something in this you're going to be fixed you'll get into heaven but there's something else you'll get you'll get fixed you'll get saved through God's wrath through him for if while we were God's enemies, those who said we like our plan better than yours, God, we were reconciled, meaning made right, to him through the death of his son. So something about his death. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So he's going, something's a problem. And we were enemies. But then Jesus comes and saves us. That's mercy. But he doesn't just save us. He gives us grace. That's a gift. Like how much more? We're getting something good out of this. Not for heaven, but for now. So let's pay attention to what it is. Not only this, so, but also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received um, reconciliation. So Paul's going, I've gotten this, and so I've got to celebrate it. I'm really proud of it. I want other people to know it, that this is how it works. Jesus fixes sinners. You're going, I don't know how yet. Stay with me. Verse 12. Therefore... That's what he says. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. So he's going, this problem of sinner, he said, let me help me understand it. You're going, how did this get here? He goes, oh, it's really, really simple. It's really, really simple. Complicated, but simple. He says, he says, so imagine this. Imagine that in the beginning... There was a man. We know him, Adam. And you go, I don't believe in Adam. Okay, figure out whatever first man you have, okay? It's Adam. But if you don't, not there yet, figure out the first man. And you go, Adam came here. And here's what's crazy about Adam. When Adam was born, like your kids are born, he had an option to really, really celebrate and trust God and say, God, you're all good. And Adam decided that he would do his own thing, right? So Adam goes, I'm going to live my own way. I'm going to have my own nature. I don't need your perfect godly nature. I'm going to have my own nature. That's ungodly. That's sin. And so Adam created this whole new category of people. And they're called sinners. And when Adam was born, he entered this world. And here's what he's saying. And therefore, Adam had kids. And guess where Adam's kids grew up in that world? They were also in Adam. So we have this new category of people, Adam. And everybody who falls down there is an Adam. And you know this if you've done any psychotherapy. When you, one of the things you have to work through is your family of origins. You sit there and you kind of process why you do what you do. And what you finally come to a conclusion of is you do what you do because of something that happened with your parents. 
right? Something about how they didn't esteem you, affirm you, left you alone, whatever it is. Something about why you do what you do. It's not their fault, but there is a reason, and part of that is because of something that the parents did, right? Then you go, well, why did your parents do what they do? All is simple. Their parents. Then why did your grandparents do what they do? Oh, this is simple. They're your great-grandparents. Well, why did your great-grandparents do what you did? They did, right? Oh, it's simple. Your great-great-grandparents. You follow me? So the reality of where we are is a result of the world we live in, and a lot of that's shaped by our parents, who are shaped by their 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 parents. You follow the line? Where did all that start? <laughs> With the first man. So he's saying, so he's saying to me, hey, Josh, you're an Adam. Ah. Oh. You know what else is an Adam? Briggs. That's my oldest. You know what else is an Adam? It's hard to say, but oh, Amelia's an Adam. Uh, you know what else is an Adam? Yep, 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 yep. Oh, Sophie. She's adopted. She didn't get my genes, but she got them from somewhere, right? Adam and oh, oh, baby, I'm sorry. You know what else is an Adam? Oh, probably less than I am, but my wife, Julie. Sorry, baby. <laughs> All of us an Adam. You got it? All of us an Adam. And you go, well, that's not fair. Okay, then he says you're sinners too, but here's what it Even if you don't think it's fair, can we just admit something? It may not be fair, but it's true. Let me explain. We all know babies that are born with fetal alcohol syndrome. That's not fair. It's just not fair. So you can spend your whole life telling them that it's not true, but here's the problem. It's still true. It might not be fair, but it's true. Right? We all see all sorts of pain for babies born addicted to heroin, right? And you go, that's not fair. I agree, but it's still true. And so the reality Paul's going, you might not think it's fair, but here's the deal. It's true. There's a difference between being fair and being true, and it's true. So he's going, all of us are born in this. You see, we were all in this. We were sinners in our nature. The same thing that's in Samson is in us. Somewhere in us, there is this code. And watch, he continues, and he says this. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. So it always was there. You know this. Before you even told your kids the right thing, they were already doing the wrong thing. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. There's some really beautiful things we could talk about about Noah and floods, but we don't have time right now. I'm worried about you and me. So here's what it says next. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of one to come. So Adam has said, don't eat from this tree. God says that, eat from this tree. And Adam goes, I like my plan better than yours. No, you might not have done that. But you've done your own sin. But regardless, regardless, your daddy... Is Adam. And your DNA exists Adam. And your nature exists sin. It might not be fair, but it's true, so we should deal with the truth of that. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking it, right? As did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But, again, it's more tangential thoughts, right? Um, but the gift is not like the trespass. He's going, look, look. If God, I mean, if Adam, a human, can mess this up, perhaps, 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 what if God himself comes to make this right? And if God himself comes to make this right, then it's not going to be exactly the same because God has deeper powers and deeper abilities than Adam. So while you're in Adam, perhaps there's a way to get out of Adam into a different thing. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow from the many? So you're going, how is this nature? I'm in Adam. And he goes, no, no, no. You don't have to be in Adam. You can be in Jesus. Watch this. Here's what it says next. Nor can the gift can be compared to the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Condemnation that you feel? It's because of the judgment on Adam all the way down through us. It might not be fair, but it's true. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Now watch what he says. 4, verse 17. If by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one and... Right? Man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, that's a gift, and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. Might not be fair, but it's true. You're an Adam, but you don't have to be. Because just as one poor behavior led to death for many, one perfect person 
whose death led to freedom for many, means that in Christ, you hear Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't just go up on a locker room or a fear t-shirt. No fear t-shirt, right? This isn't a sports verse. He's literally saying, in Christ, you're no longer an atom. In Christ, you can be freed from sin. In Christ, you can be recoded. In Christ, you can have a different life. In Christ, you don't have to live like Samson. In Christ, you don't have to look at that thing. In Christ, you don't have to say that thing. He's literally going, look, this is a complete rewiring of your DNA. Right? At the, at the cellular level, Jesus comes in and through him, he can just change it all. Now watch what he says. Watch what he says. Consequently, right? Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all, so also one actious result, actious righteous act resulted in justification in life for all. So if one bad behavior led to this unrighteousness and this responsibility of consequence, what if one good act of that same thing could lead to your freedom? For just as through disobedience of the one man, the, the many were made sinners. Sinners. So also through the obedience of that one man, the many will be made righteous. So he's saying there's something in this. Don't pay attention. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. He's going, the reason you're given a law was because the reality is you were already in Adam. The law didn't make you go in Adam. You were already there. You just didn't know it. So the laws are the very things that tell you there's a problem. Watch this right now. Please don't think of a cuss word. You're in church. Shame on so many of you. Right this second, you just thought of a cuss word in church. And some of you, like, you're like listening off six, seven, eight in your head, right? You're just running down the line. You're like, oh, I can't stop. I can't stop, right? You weren't going to show up at church today and think of a cuss word. It's my fault, right? In the past, no, it's already in you. But the reason you noticed that it was in you is because I didn't give you that vocabulary. Because I just told you not to do it, and all of a sudden you do it. So he says, look, the law was given to you so that you'd realize there's a problem. And here's what he says. Now, here's the reality. The more laws you got... The law was brought in so that um, the many will be righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. So you'd be really, really aware. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's like you got this debit card that you could just fill up with sin. But it wasn't a debit card. It was a credit card, right? And it wasn't a zero line. You could just keep racking up debt. And for your whole life in Adam, you just racked up the debt. Then all of a sudden you go, now you can be in Christ and you can be freed from that debt, right? You're having all these conversations right now about student loans, right? Whoa, if we get a different president, they're going to free all the student loans. And many of us have the thought of going, well, then I should have taken out more loans, right? If I'd have known this 20, 30 years ago, five years ago, I would have just racked it up, right? Because now it's all going to get canceled. Or maybe it's going to get canceled. Don't follow me. I, I don't have a clue, right? And I know we just made some people angry. Sorry, sorry. But in that, you go, I just want to rack it up. And here's what he says. He goes, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. He's going, you get forgiven and you get righteousness. What was all bad, he gives you good. And you go like the debt thing. You go, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Right? I should have gotten more student loan debt. Right? Should we just should we keep going in the negative of God's paying it anyway? Let's go on a spending spree. And he goes, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? By no means. Look at Samson's life. It was miserable. So this isn't a way by which you get to sin some more. It's actually going, no, you don't have to sin anymore. And the reason you don't is because Jesus died for your sin. You're like, I don't understand what that means. Or don't you know that all of us, watch this, were baptized in Christ Jesus. All of us uh, know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. You're going, oh, see, there's spiritual terms. Hear me, hear me, hear me. That word baptized is not a spiritual term. It is now. We talk about baptism, both immersion, sprinkling, all that kind of stuff. That word literally in the Greek just means immersed. Just means immersed. It means. For those of you who were in Adam, who made the transfer over and now are immersed in Christ. Here's what that means. You step into Christ and He becomes your blanket. He becomes your shield. He envelops you. Here's what He says. No. You're now in Christ. Don't imagine this. In Christ. He takes Josh, places him inside of Jesus. Right? I am now in Jesus. And here's what Jesus does. He then goes up onto a cross and dies. He pays the price for sin. Now remember, if you are in Him, guess who else is paying the price for sin? You are. Because you're in Jesus, and Jesus is paying the price. So you are now in Christ. So he's covering. This isn't like, oh, this is a theory. Oh, I pay some, I pray some prayers. No, no, no. He actually takes you, puts you in him. You're now covered by him. So his death is your death. 
His death is your death. This is literal. He actually died, and he had you in his mind, knowing who you are as a child in him. So he's going, in Christ. Those who are baptized, right? We, therefore, were buried with him. You actually died. Baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We too may live a new life. We too may live a new life. So you're going, this is that happened. Christ was actually buried and then he comes back to life. But because you were with him in spirit, you were with him, then when you come back, you now have a new father. You have a new code. For if you've been united with him in death like he is, we will certainly also be united with him in the resurrection like his. Meaning, not only do you get new life now, there will be a day where all that power will consume you and you will invade heaven. But this is not a story about heaven. This is a story about earth and how you can enjoy it now. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer, please pay attention to this word, be slaves to sin. Hear me, hear me, hear me. If you have acknowledged that Christ is Lord, that he did this for you, listen to me, you are, hear me, hear me, you are no longer in Adam. You are no longer in Adam. You are no longer in Adam. Hear me. You are no longer in Adam. You might not know that, but you are no longer in Adam. You are not a slave to that. You do not have Adam. You do not have the old man as your boss or your master. You do not have to do the things that you used to do. And there's lots more I want you to understand the deep theology. And I tell you, please, for homework, would you, would you, would you? Would you read verses 8 through 13, would you? Okay, good, good. But I want to read to you verse 14 real quick. And here's what it says. For sin... For sin, for sin shall no longer, hear me, be your master because you are not under the law. Because you already paid the price for the law. Because Jesus took you and you died. It went into the ground. Death went into the ground. And here's what's crazy. It was left there. Sin was left in the ground. You, in Jesus, went into the ground. And all that, it kind of gets purged and Jesus, a new life comes back out of it. Sin is no longer your master. Because you're no longer under the law. That was died. Instead, you're under grace. Blessing upon blessing. Gift upon gift. That's all God wants for you. The reason he doesn't want you to sin is not because he wants you to feel bad. Because he wants you to enjoy this world. You no longer have sin as your master. And so, so, so this week, this is what you got to do. You got to go. When you want to look at that. When you want to say it. When you want to feel it. When you want to touch it. When you want to see it. Would you just please, please, please. Just for oh, just a half second. Would you just go sin? You're not my master. You might still do it, guys. In fact, you probably will. We all do. You might still do it, but could you just pause for a second to make sure that thing you're about to do knows that it doesn't get to rule you? Can you just for a second just go, no, no, Sam, you're not my master. I'm going to do this right now because I'm still broken, but Sam, you're not my master. You see this? Like, you do not have to do those things anymore. You do not have to look at that. You go, no, no, I've always had to. It's just who I am. I drink that. I tell you that. I taste that. No, you don't have to do that because sin, if you're in Christ, is no longer your master. It is not your master. You're going, but I keep doing it. Okay, hear me, hear me. Imagine, imagine that you adopt a kid. Uh, we have one, Sophie, but I still have this dream of adopting an adolescent. I don't want to adopt them from, from an orphanage, right? And imagine, not, a lot of, there's a lot of great orphanages, and the bands don't come up so we can prepare for this last song, but there's lots of great orphanages. But imagine this orphanage is really oppressive. Just really oppressive and abusive, and this kid has just had a really bad life. And you go in and you bring this 11 or 12 year old and welcome them into your world, right? And through some signing of some papers, it's so crazy, some ink makes that son or daughter your son or daughter. It doesn't even make any sense, some ink, right? And you, and you go and you're like, I gotta stay, the flight's hurting you. You take your son out of that oppressive orphanage and you bring him to your hotel room, right? That son has a new name. It's someone else's child. He's now a Robert. That beautiful boy is now Robert. So imagine, that night, the orphanage, one of the bad people from the orphanage comes and knocks on that hotel room and tells that boy to come with them. What's the boy going to do? He's going to start getting his stuff. Why? Because he's lived his whole life with that orphanage as his master. Right? He's no longer his master, but he can't get it yet. Because his whole life is spent with this thing as his master. You know, a week later, that orphanage knocks on the door. He's probably still going to do it. But he's going to be a little more hesitant. A month later, he might not pack his bag, but he's probably still walking towards it. And I'm going to have to keep rounding, no, you're a Robert. Three months later, maybe he'll listen. Maybe he'll consider it, but he's probably not going all the way back into the orphanage. Nine months later, he's still bringing up some pain and some sorrow, but he's getting some new life. 
six years later, he's going to look at that master from the orphanage and go, I don't know who you are. I don't recognize you. You're saying you're my master, but I've never even seen you before. All you have, you just don't remember. Why? Because you've got a new family. You have a new name. You no longer have that tyrant as your master. The reality is sin, hear me, hear me, is no longer your master. No, you might want to walk back into it, but you do not have to. And you won't fix it today. You won't fix it next week. But if you're going to start going, there are no sins, and then I'm not in you. I'm not in and out of them anymore. That died. That's in the grave. You're now in Christ. Sin's no longer your master. You have a new family. You have a new code. Literally, God is rewriting your DNA at the cellular level. Every part of you is being converted into the fullness of Christ, where there is no more pain, no more suffering, and no more tyrants. But there is grace upon grace. That's the story of the gospel. Not that you get to heaven, but that you get to start living that today. So sin is no longer your master because you have a new deliverer.